am so glad you're here today. We're glad that you're joining us online and thankful that you've uh, decided to, to spend this time worshiping God with us together as a family. I want to ask you to um, rise just for a moment as we look at our scripture for today. It's Matthew 4. We're going to dive in a little bit to the first four verses of Matthew 4. Coming out of what we talked about last week, the end of Matthew 3, it makes sense to go to the beginning of Matthew 4. So listen to these verses with me. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Father, we just give this time to you, Lord. We just ask that your spirit reveals the truth and the reality of who you are through your word today. And Father, I just ask that if there's anything I speak in error out of my own ignorance, that you just let those words fall on the ground. But let us all walk out of here with nothing less than the fullness of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you can have a seat. So I have a story to tell you. Thanksgiving 2004. American Thanksgiving, so it was November. I was working in a psychiatric hospital. Now, if you work in a hospital, you know a couple things about the holidays. You don't get all the holidays. Usually, you get to pick Thanksgiving or Christmas. Well, I picked Christmas. So my wife and our three girls took off and went to New Jersey to spend Thanksgiving with her family. And so I was left alone to my own devices for a week. Now, Normally, that wouldn't be a, necessarily a bad thing. At the time, I was driving a Ford F-150 pickup truck. Doesn't look like something I'd drive, right? <laughs> I didn't think so either. See, I saw myself as a Jeep guy, not as a truck guy. My wife was out of town. And so while my wife and my kids were away, I decided that I would take it upon myself to resolve this identity crisis. And so... I went to the Jeep dealership and I pulled up and sitting right in the front of the lot is this beautiful red Wrangler with a black top, two door soft top. It was divine providence because that's exactly what the Jeep I'd been dreaming of. So naturally to resolve this identity crisis, I bought the Jeep. Some of you have never made a major purchase without your spouse knowing because only a few of you laughed. So my wife's out of town we had had exactly zero conversations about me purchasing a vehicle, and I didn't call her to discuss it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so here's the thing. I wish I would have known then what I know now. I wish I would have known that my identity was a product of position, not possessions. Because I thought this red Jeep was going to feel like who I was. And if I had it, then people would see me as I am, not as something else. See, we're all a product of this Western mentality of consumerism. We're all a product of it. And it's so subtle and deep in us, we don't even recognize it. Maybe a better way to say it is we're all victims of it. We're all victims of this idea that, that marketing and media has given us that tells us that our identity is a product of our possessions, not of our position. Cars, houses, clothes, stuff. That defines who I am, right? That's the Western mentality. We've done a really good job of exporting 
rest of the world. I made my first trip to Haiti in 2001. By the time I went back for my fourth or fifth trip, it was about 2005. And Haitians had cell phones. <laughs> they didn't have food, but they had cell phones. We had exported a Western mentality to the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and people were doing all they could to possess a smartphone, a cell phone. Because we live in a world that demands that we have certain things. We have to have clothes, houses, cars, stuff. We have to have these things just to survive. That's the nature of the world. Having stuff is not bad in and of itself. Relative to the rest of the world, we're wealthy. Relative to the rest of the world, we have a lot of stuff. However, once we begin to define ourselves in terms of our possessions, we start to drift towards the world. We start to fade back into the world and away from the kingdom of God. And so here's what happens as we begin to drift back into the world. We run the danger of our identity being defined by what we have, not who we are. And this is a mindset that we all have to wrestle with. We all have to wrestle with this idea of possessions somehow define who I am. And that mindset that we wrestle with is simply this. The more I have, the more I am. That's the lie. That's the lie that culture tells us. So why that Western culture tells us, the more I have, the more I am. And so we start to acquire things and we cling to things and then we think that those things will actually help us find our identity just like I thought that red Jeep without my wife's knowledge would help me to find my identity. And we start to think that these things will actually bring us a sense of comfort and peace and maybe even rest to our minds and our souls. And in the end, we're just so easily entangled in our stuff that we don't find any of those things. We don't find comfort, rest, or peace in that. Listen to these words from Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking that they can provide security and freedom from anxiety. Yet all the time, they are the very source of anxiety. See, again, the problem is not in owning things. The problem lies in being mastered by things. That's a universal truth. It's a universal truth that we all have to contend with. If we're going to truly live into our identity as God's beloved, we have to deal with this universal truth that we can't serve two masters. It's in Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Now what we're going to see today is that this statement, as true as it is, actually goes deeper than we think. It goes deeper into our identity. That's what it means to serve things. It's to say I'm going to be defined by these things. That's the operative word there, serve. It doesn't say have, it says serve. I can actually have things. I can actually own stuff and not serve it. I know many strong and godly Christians who possess much, but they don't serve it. They're not looking to their stuff to find their identity. They found it in something else. And see, here's what happens. We get stuck in the cycle of serving our stuff or our wealth, as Matthew refers to it in that verse, when we believe that our identity is defined by our possessions. When we believe our identity is defined by our possessions, we are now serving stuff. That's not what God says. 
And this struggle isn't unique to the modern world. This isn't something that's happened since the Industrial Revolution where we've had access to, to products and marketing and things, and we've actually had time to enjoy them. It's not something that, that's unique to us in our circumstance. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself had to fight this very battle. He had to fight this very battle of not serving stuff. And so last Sunday, we looked at Matthew 3, right? And we kind of zoned in on verse 17, where Jesus was baptized, and God pronounced his position as his beloved son over him. And then he said, this is my disposition. His position is he's my beloved son. And my disposition towards him is he's pleasing to me. I'm well pleased in him. And so now we're going to go into Matthew 4, the first four verses there. Because what I want you to see as we talk through this idea of identity for the next few weeks is that in this temptation of Jesus, Satan tried to tempt him with each one of those areas of identity that we mentioned last week. You are what you have. You are what you do. You are what people think of you. That's the very temptation that Satan came to Jesus with. And so we start in verse 1, and it says, Jesus was led. Then Jesus was led. Then is right after his baptism. The end of Matthew 3, verse 17, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led. Immediately after that. It wasn't some haphazard, spur of the moment decision that Jesus made thinking, well, you know, it's been a big start to all this. Let me go hang out in the desert for a little while. He was led. It was a purposeful act of submission by Jesus to say, Spirit, I will let you lead me. And that's what it says next. He was led up by the Spirit. Now this is the same Spirit that pronounced His identity over Him at His baptism. It's the same Spirit that is sealing us today, that is transforming us. It's the same Spirit who whispers our identity to us. And He was led into the wilderness. Now what is a wilderness? It's a place of lack, a place of scarcity, a place of danger. You don't go in the wilderness because you want to have a feast and feel safe. Now, why was he led into the wilderness? To be tempted by the devil. Do you see that? He was led into the wilderness for the express purpose to be tempted by that lying voice that rises up to tell us that our identity is a product of our performance or our possession, our perception. Now, I want to step out of these passages for just one moment because I want to deal with the dynamic of temptation and response that we see in these verses. Because what you're going to see by the end of all this is that the dynamic that, that is in these verses is the same dynamic that's at play for us today. Satan uses the same strategy to tempt us. And our response can be the same response that Jesus used to overcome this temptation. And so here's what the, the strategy was. The temptation of Satan was an attempt to get Jesus to find his identity in what he has, or in this case, doesn't have. And that's still Satan's strategy today. He whispers in our ears, you are what you do, you are what you have, you are what people think about you. And when we look at Jesus' response to Satan's temptation, we can actually see how we can resist that temptation and create an identity that is rooted in our position instead of our possession and who we are in Christ. And so Jesus, by living out of his position instead of his possession, did exactly what James wrote in James 4, 7. Submit therefore to God, 
but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, spoiler alert. When we get to the end of this temptation of Jesus, what we're going to see is Satan left. The reality of James 4, 7 is what Jesus is doing in this wilderness. He's not quoting a verse because this is what you know, somebody wrote. He's living it out. James wrote that verse because Jesus lived it out. Jesus didn't live it out because James wrote it. It's reality. And so resisting temptation always begins with submission. If you think you can stand against the temptations of Satan without submitting to God, you are woefully wrong. He knows more. He's been around more. He's seen more than we do. We can't stand in a place of non-submission and resist these temptations that come at us. And so in being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, Jesus is submitting to God. He's saying, I'm going to follow what it is you want for me. And so we go back to Matthew 4 and verse 2. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. So here's what's happening here. Jesus, again, is living out what Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 9, where Paul said, your grace is sufficient for me. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is living out of a place that says, I'm hungry, but your grace is sufficient for me. Food itself. 40 days of fasting. I can't go 40 minutes. And if I go 45 minutes, you will all know I'm hungry. Because I'll live out of that rather than my identity. You now this is the best part to me. This is the punchline. I, I think Matthew had jokes when he wrote this. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Like it was at the end of the 40 days. He then became hungry. I think so. I would guess, yeah. Probably was. But here's the thing. Jesus had a legitimate need in that moment. His legitimate need was, I need food. The human body needs food to sustain itself. That was a legitimate need. And here's why that matters. Because I think Satan oftentimes tries to tempt us when we are weak in our humanity and we actually have a legitimate need. He likes to show up when our humanity is weak. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a loss. And then he tempts us in that. Because in our minds, what we decide is, but this is legitimate, God. I legitimately need this thing. And so I can step out of submission to get it. And then it says this, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, think about that for a minute. Who did God say that Jesus was in Matthew 3.17? My beloved son. God pronounces, you are my beloved son. And what does Satan try to wedge in there and question? If you are the son of God. That's the very thing that God just spoke over him. You are my beloved son. And Satan goes up, if you are the son of God. He's questioning, trying to get Jesus to question his identity as God's beloved son. If you are the son of God. If you are if, if, think about that. God pronounces a certainty and Satan tries to come in and bring doubt. Satan's strategy begins with inviting us into questioning our identity as God's beloved. He always starts there. He always starts there. And then he tells him, if you are the son of God, command these stones 
to become bread. Do you notice the next thing he did here? He invited Jesus to prove his identity. Because in our humanity, what do we like to do? We like to say, well, I know who I am, but I want to prove that constantly. He didn't say you aren't the son of God or, or I don't believe you are the son of God. He said, if you are the son of God, then do this. He tried to saddle Jesus with the burden of proof. If you are then. You ever felt that in your spirit? The sense that you got to prove to yourself your identity? If I am the son of God, then I would do this or I wouldn't do that or I would have this or I wouldn't have that. We start to think to ourselves, surely as God's beloved, I deserve whatever it is. You fill in the blank. A nice house, a good car, the newest gadget, the best toys, whatever it is. We do that to ourselves. And when we do that to ourselves, we're actually following Satan's lead of him saying, if you are, then. And we go, well, if I am, then I'll do this. I'll get in debt over my head so that I have nicer stuff. I'll cling to my possessions and serve them. He didn't say, I don't believe you are the Son of God. He tries to convince us of that exact same thing. The same thing he convinced Adam and Eve of, which is simply this. God is holding out on you. That's Satan's strategy. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. God is holding out on you. There's better stuff. There's more stuff. He's holding out on you. That's what led to the fall in the garden. That's what leads to the fall in our lives every day. God's holding out on you. If you're his beloved son, why don't you have? Shouldn't you have this? Shouldn't you have that? If you're his beloved son and she's his beloved daughter, why does she have this and you not? That's what Satan does. He wants us to believe that God's got better stuff that he's just keeping from us. Like God is some cosmic hoarder of great things that we have to, have to perform and earn and get from him. We start thinking to ourselves, look at the house that so-and-so has, and I live in this little place. Or look at so-and-so's car, and I drive this old rust bucket. Or look at them, they're always dressed so nice, and I've got these old ratty clothes. Or, or look at them, they have a new iPhone, XR14 Mini Max, Retinal Display, SE Pro, 147 gigabyte, and I got a flip phone. We do that. And every time we do that, we're stepping right into what Satan invited us into. That question of, if you are God's son, then... And if he can convince us that God is holding out on us, we will jump into trying to create an identity by gathering stuff. If we fall into that trap, we will run headlong into saying, I will build my identity by getting stuff. Now this is important. Listen to this in verse four. But he answered and said, now notice this. This is gonna be important for us to learn a strategy here. Notice this. Jesus didn't ignore Satan. He didn't dismiss Satan. He didn't say, well, I don't have to listen to you. I think it's critical to understand that oftentimes we think that Satan will just stop telling us those lies if we just ignore him long enough. If I get enough other noise in my life, I won't hear his voice anymore. But we will. And so what we decide is the best way to handle this temptation is I'm just going to push it off. 
I'm just going to not listen to the haters. I'm just going to ignore all of this. But that's the exact opposite of what Jesus did. Jesus' strategy wasn't to ignore or dismiss, but he emphatically refuted what Satan said. If you are the Son of God, shouldn't you have bread? You're hungry. It's a legitimate need. If you are the Son of God, shouldn't you have a full stomach? It's a legitimate need. We have to remember that what Jesus came back to Satan with was reality. We silence the tempter with truth. We don't silence him by ignoring him. We don't silence him by pushing it off. We don't silence him by saying, I'm just not going to listen to this. The only way to silence that tempter is to come back with truth, with reality. That's what Jesus did. That's why he said, it is written. Now, for a first century Palestinian Jew to refer to anything as written, what he's saying is this is the authority. You can't circumvent it. You can't get around it. It is what is and nothing else is if it's not this. Jesus uses that phrase over and over again through this section of the temptation in the wilderness. It is written. It is written. It is written. You see what he's doing? What he's saying is the ultimate and prime reality is what the Father says. The ultimate and prime reality is what the Father says. It's not what I feel. It's not what I think. It's not the hunger pains in my stomach. It's what the Father said. He's saying my Father spoke it. Therefore, it's the basis of all my beliefs and my thoughts and my feelings and my ideas and my actions and my motivation. And then he shared with him what was written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus' response to Satan was an invitation to speak the underlying reality of Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, what things? All things. All things that matter all things that are truly real, all things that endure. It doesn't mean that a Mercedes is going to be added to me because that doesn't endure. But it means all things that are true and real and endure will be added to me. Here's what Jesus is doing in that moment. He's placing, seeking God's kingdom as the top priority in his life, even above his own need for food. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is saying the number one thing, the only thing that matters is that I seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Well, even more than eating Jesus? Yeah. But you could starve to death, yes. And I'd rather starve to death than not be in God's kingdom. I'd rather starve to death than not be seeking God's kingdom. See, because Satan showed up in a moment of what we would call lack and says, hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you have bread? Think about it. Other people who aren't the Son of God have bread. Why don't you have bread? Why don't you just step out on your own and prove your identity and, and eat? Prove who you are and eat. Because here's what Satan understands that oftentimes we don't know. Satan understood that the nature of sin is relational, not behavioral. The nature of sin is relational, not behavioral. Here's what I mean. Sin is my attempt to fulfill my needs and God's promises in my timing and for my purposes. We limit 
the scope of sin to bad actions. Things that we, we shouldn't do and we do. But the reality is the reason sin is destructive is because it erodes the relationship between God and I. Sin is relational. That's what I did with my Jeep. Is it bad to buy a new car? No. Did I erode my relationship with my wife for a period of time because of that? Yeah. Sin is relational, not behavioral. And so Jesus responds to Satan in such a way, he says, yeah, here's the thing. You're right, I am hungry. I would like something to eat right now. But the kingdom of my father, which is my kingdom by inheritance, which is our kingdom by inheritance, is more important. It's more satisfying. It's more desired. It's more meaningful than a full stomach. And I won't break my relationship with the Father by stepping out on my own. I just won't do it. So what's that mean for us? I think it means a few things that we need to, to be aware of. First, Jesus gives us the practical strategy of responding to the lies with the eternal reality, which is God's very word. What Jesus is laying out for us is a practical strategy of how we respond to the lies when they come. This is why as a church, we're practicing that discipline of sitting silent before God and saying, tell me who I am. Tell me who I am. So that he can speak his truth reality over our identity. Second thing we need to be aware of in all this is that there's a timeless strategy of Satan that's very much still in play today. He still approaches us the same way. It's the strategy of attempting to cause us to question our identity as God's beloved by questioning God's goodness toward us and his provision for us. That's all Satan does when he tempts us. He's trying to get us to question God's goodness. He's trying to get us to question whether God is a provider for us. And then the last thing Jesus did here, his strategy was to live out of his identity as God's beloved. It's proven to overcome Satan's strategy of leading us to question our identity. We're gonna see over the next few weeks, he did this three different times. Three different times he came back to the reality of God speaks to who I am, therefore I can overcome this temptation. And so here's what we need to know. When faced with challenges to my identity or when the loud voice of deception tries to tell me if I were truly God's beloved, I would have this or that or I can, I can follow the strategy of Jesus. First thing I do is submit. I submit fully to the Father, but not in a behavioral sense, in a relational sense. I submit to God in a relational sense and I allow his spirit to lead me. Jesus was fully submitted to the Father. So what's that actually mean? How do I do that in practice? Well, simple. I want what God wants for me, in me and through me more than I want anything else. Now I know what happens as human beings, we tend to think that, well, I don't have, I can't steer my desire. Desire just happens, that's a lie. It's a lie from Satan. We can actually steer our desires. When we expose ourselves to good things, we begin to want those things. When you expose yourself to God, to his truth, to his reality, to his word, to his people, you begin to want those things. And so as we continue to sit before God and let him speak our identity as his beloved over us, we're gonna begin to know more deeply what he actually wants. And once I know what he wants, I can want it. 
I can seek it. I can desire it. And so what happens in that silence when I sit before God and say, Lord, I need you to tell me who I am. I actually have a desire for him that's constantly growing, getting deeper. And then here's the dirty little secret. Obedience will come naturally when it's rooted in affection instead of obligation because obedience becomes relational, not behavioral. Obedience will become natural when it's rooted in affection, not obligation. Because obedience becomes relational, not behavioral. I will do what he wants me to do when I realize that to not do what he wants me to do strains the relationship. That's important to understand. Because a lot of times we limit sin to actions. And well, I did this thing and it was wrong. But we need to stop and go, wait a minute, when I do this thing, how does it impact the relationship? When I seek things on my own, how does it impact the relationship? The other thing Jesus did was he committed to prayer. He committed to prayer. Jesus' fasting was an intense 40 days of prayer. It was a deep reliance of God and seeking closeness with him. Because here's what happens. When we pray, I'm not talking about over a meal or at a moment when, when we get that phone call that says, you know, grandma's sick. I'm talking about when we pray as a lifestyle, what Paul called praying without ceasing. When our thoughts are on God, which is prayer, our eyes and ears of our soul become more in tune to the voice of the Father. And so now I can hear him. <laughs> he speaks deeply to my soul. And then finally, we have to respond to the doubts that come with trust in God's word. Jesus trusted God's truth. That's what the whole it is written was about. I trust this more than I trust my own hunger pains. And see, here's, here's one of the things we believe. We believe that the opposite of doubt is certainty. Right? You have a doubt, what do you do? You go get knowledge, information, and resolve it. Here's the problem. The opposite of doubt is not certainty. The opposite of doubt is trust. When I have doubts, I'm not going to resolve those doubts by studying God like an insect under a microscope. No, I'm going to resolve those doubts by trusting Him. Because the opposite of doubt is trust, not certainty. Remember what we said last week about the Hebrew concept of trust? It's to live as if what I profess to be true is actually true. That's what trust is. That's what Jesus did. It's written that man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the Father's mouth. Well, how did he live that out? By not eating. <laughs> That's what trust is. See, when the deceiver says, if you are God's child, then our response is to simply seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And know that everything will be added to us. Seek first. Satan shows up and goes, well, if you're, if you're God's beloved, wouldn't you have a better car, a better house, nicer clothes, more food? And shoes probably wouldn't have holes in them. You'd have more stuff if you're God's beloved. And my simple answer is, well, I don't know about that, but I know I'm going to seek first his kingdom. See, we can actually live out of the same vision that Jesus went into the wilderness with. And it's a vision of ourselves as God's beloved in Christ. You know where the wilderness is? It's right outside these doors. 
It's the offices we walk in. It's the roads we drive on. It's the grocery store we go into. It's the social issues that come up that we're trying to figure out how do we navigate that in love. That's where the wilderness is. So Jesus had that vision. He went into the wilderness and said, my vision is of me as God's beloved. Nothing more. And then he became intentional about staying in that vision by seeking first the kingdom of God. It goes back to the beginning of this passage. He was led by the Spirit. He was seeking first the kingdom of God. Now here's the dirty little secret. We actually have the same means available to us to realize that vision of living as God's beloved in Christ that Jesus used in this passage to live in that vision of God's beloved as Christ. Oftentimes we go, well, I can't do that. I'm not Jesus. He was God and I'm not. Yes, we know. We established that last week. We know you're not God. But you know what Jesus lived into when he was faced with temptation? He lived into his humanity. He didn't live into his divinity. Because if he had lived into his divinity, we could then be justified in saying, I can't do what he did because I'm not God. But the reality is, no, we're invited to live as he lived, to let him do in us so that we can live as he lived. And here's the means by which Jesus went into the wilderness and faced this temptation. Submission, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you a question. Which one of those is not available to every one of us in this room? Which one? We have access to submission simply by aligning our will with God's will. We have access to prayer. We have access to the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that Jesus used in the wilderness to face this temptation of your identity is in what you have, not who you are, that we can't access. And so as we begin to understand that as God's beloved in Christ, our identity is not determined by our possessions, we'll actually begin to live out of our true identity. There's this great quote from Charles Spurgeon, the, the old English preacher. And it's a quote about being satisfied in Christ. When you can take up a crust of bread and a cup of cold water and with the poor Puritan say, what, all this in Christ too? Then you will be truly happy and you will make others truly happy. Don't you love that? Don't you love it? What do you have? What's in your pocket? What if you looked at that thing in your pocket and said, what, all this in Christ too? What if you look at your bank account and the zeros are on the front end instead of the back end? And you looked at it and you said, what, all this in Christ too? What if you looked at illness and lack and suffering and grief and said, what, all this in Christ too? Because here's what Spurgeon is driving at. He's driving at this quote that John Piper puts it very succinctly, not nearly as poetically, but very succinctly. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Think about that for a minute. When I know my identity is in Christ and I'm seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness, then whatever I have is enough. Because I get to go, what, all this in Christ too? To possess Jesus is to possess the only possession that can ever fully satisfy my true identity as God's beloved in Christ. That's not some mystical knowledge. That's not some deep truth that I need to understand and categorize and explain. It's simply a reality that I can choose to live into.
And I want to invite you to live into that reality this week. I want to invite you to continue to sit with God in silence and just say, you know what? You speak your identity over me. Continue to speak my identity over me. Tell me who I am in you. But I also want to invite you to do that in community. Because again, if we are speaking the identity of God's beloved in Christ over each other, we're going to live that out. And so next Sunday after the service, we're going to have some tables out here in the lobby where you can join a life group. If you're not in a life group, come next Sunday, get in one. But this happens in community. It might be the only place on the planet, a life group in a church might be the only place on the planet where people want to look at you and go, I know you're God's beloved in Christ. Because the guy that's tailgating you on the highway, he doesn't want to say that. the person who you're frustrating at work because you just won't do or can't do what they want you to do in a moment, they're not going to say that. But here, we can say that to each other. And so I want to invite you to come back next Sunday. If you're not part of a group, come back next Sunday and become a part of a group. You know what it's time for the church to do? It's time for the church to wipe the mud of COVID off our feet and say, we are going to live as people who are seeking first God's kingdom in community with each other because we know that the love that happens there will overflow the city. But we have to say it's time. I'm not saying that we ignore the, the health sector and the governmental sector. We live within that. But we have to say at this time, it's time for me to live as a community of believers the way we intended to live in 2019. The way we always promised ourselves, one day I'll do that. Well, it's one day. So next Sunday, come back and join a group. Do this in community and watch what happens. Let me pray for you. Father, we're so grateful for today. We're so grateful for the worship that just pointed our hearts to you. We're grateful for the fact that, that our kids are down the hall and well taken care of and being lifted up and built up. That, that they're surrounded by people and Catherine and all of her volunteers who are saying, hey, kids, come with us. We're going to seek the kingdom first together. Father, we're grateful for Jared and, and the, the grade fives and sixes that are upstairs doing the same thing. We're grateful for the life groups that will meet this week and do the same thing. And God, we pray that in our individual times alone with you, you show us that vision of living solely as your beloved in Christ. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.